It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. Opening up with a little snippet from uh, Von Meter's uh, record album, The First Family, featuring uh, the Kennedys uh, in the White House. And that seems appropriate because my first guest, um, Coming up is uh, journalist Neil Thompson, who has just written a book called The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. Very interesting conversation. Today is Wednesday, which means coming up in about an hour, we have uh, Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable. It's going to be mixed up a little bit today. We'll have our roundtable regular uh, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki, but he will be joined by uh, Wes Whitaker, who... uh, has been on several times, and um, he's sitting in for uh, Henry Hatter, who will be going, uh, I believe, to Woodrow Stanley's funeral this morning. And um, then joining the roundtable is uh, the author of American Schism, Seth David Radwell. Seth's been on the show a couple of times, and he's going to join us uh, for our two hours of commentary and analysis about local, state, and national headlines in the world of politics and current events. And we're going to do something a little different. In the second hour of Armchair Politics, when we cut away to go to break, um, for the live stream anyway, we're going to join the Woodrow Stanley funeral stream in process, wherever they are during where our breaks normally are. We're going to listen in for just about four minutes uh, or so each. But anyway, here's uh, Neil Thompson. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. I uh, guess this hour, this is, is kind of interesting. When I first saw the title of the book, I all of a sudden I started thinking about Vaughn Meter and, and the first family. But uh, the name of the book is called The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty, written by journalist Neil Thompson, who joins me by phone. Hi, Neil. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good to be here. Um, you know, I didn't realize that there were Kennedys that we haven't already explored <laughs> ad infinitum. Right. Yeah, you'd think by now we would have had our fill and, and we've covered covered all the bases, but that, that's what was fun about this project was um, discovering uh, this 
mostly forgotten or overlooked in some cases piece of the Kennedy story and bringing it back to life. And, you know, I, I chose to go back before the era of the Joe Kennedys and JFK and RFK and sort of deeply explore where it all began. Um, well, that's, and, and that's, that's fascinating. And, and, you know, we've, of course, a lot of attention has been paid to JFK because he was president and assassinated and so on. Bob Kennedy also assassinated. Um, and, and there's been a lot, um, a lot of attention on Joe and Rose Kennedy, their parents, and other members, uh, you know, their, their other siblings and, and extended family. Um, but does, the people that you look at in this book, the first Kennedys, does that go back two or three generations before Joe? Uh, two generations before Joe. Okay. Yeah, and I th- and I think you know we mostly think that family started with Joe. That's just sort of how we've been trained, based on. Well, we uh, certainly think that that's how the family started being successful. And I argue in the book that that's partly true. I mean, sure, Joe gets uh, credit for generating the wealth that supported the political careers of his sons and and uh, uh, and his own successes in the 20th century. But really, the that that the the beginnings of that success started with his father, P.J., politician, saloon owner, bank owner, and in uh, in Boston in the late 1800s, and then I go back even before that to explore um, where PJ came from and, and the lives of his parents, uh, Bridget and Patrick. Because um, none of it would have, you know, jo- Joe's success and the success of his children and that entire dynasty, none of it would have happened without the first Kennedys coming here as poor immigrants in the 1800s. We've had millions of poor immigrants um, come rolling over our teeming shores. Um, And what was it about this Kennedy clan that, that maybe predestined them for greatness? Yeah, I mean, that's a key theme that I explore in in this book. What was different about them? How did they rise above um, every other poor immigrant who came here during that period of time? And and what what character traits do we see in some of those first Kennedys, in particular Bridget, who I portray as sort of the overlooked matriarch and hero of the family? What traits are then carried forward through the rest of the family that, that sort of linked everything together? Um, and you know, I, I, I knew some of the background. I'm I'm Irish American, or at least on half my family, and and knew a little bit about the the famine and how it triggered this mass exodus from from Ireland. And many of them came to America, and many of them ended up in Boston. Um, but spending so much time drilling down deeply into the story of the Kennedys, who were part of that wave of immigrants, I was shocked to learn some many things that I didn't know before. Um, you know, including how uh, the forces of uh, discrimination that the Kennedys and other Irish faced when they got here, which I think in turn makes it even more remarkable uh, that Bridget and then her son um, were, were able to succeed the way they, they did, despite laws and attitudes. 
attitudes and rhetoric and the press that were very aggressively aligned against uh, Irish and Catholic during the 1800s. And, and Bridget managed to um, become a shopkeeper. Did yeah. I? Am I remembering that right? And and her husband died. Yeah, yeah. Again, all the more. She's like the original single mom. Right. Yeah, I mean, so she comes here uh, late 1840s uh, alone, which I think is remarkable too. Um, gets married in 1849 to Patrick Kennedy, and they start a family. They lose their first son, who was named John F. Kennedy. Um, and uh, have three daughters, and then finally they have a second son, PJ, in 1858. Nine, ten months later, uh, Patrick dies, leaving Bridget alone in a in a crummy tenement apartment in East Boston with four kids. She's working as a maid at that time, and her prospects are pretty dim. Uh, you know, the, I, I argue in the book, the family could have ended right there. We, we wouldn't have had the, fam- the dynasty that came later, but I think because of Bridget's tenacity and strength and resilience and all these other uh, uh, traits. She was able to keep her family intact. She was able to rise above just being a maid. She worked her way up to becoming a hairdresser at a department store, and then that led to opening her own little grocery shop in East Boston, um, which uh, was extremely rare for uh, a, a female to open a business at that time, let alone a poor, widowed Irish immigrant shop owner. Um, so I think she's really the, the, the beginning of the family dynasty, is, is what I argue in the book, and her story has been kind of overlooked. You know, it, it was interesting. I had um, uh, an encore yesterday of an interview I did with Larry Ty, who's one of the people who speaks very highly of your book. In fact, um, He said, to understand the unforgettable stories of Jack and Bobby, Eunice, Ted, and the rest of their celebrated generation of Kennedys, we have to understand the stories of their extraordinary great-grandparents and grandparents. Now, thanks to Neil Thompson, we can read all about it in the first Kennedys. That was Larry Ty, author of Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. And I brought him up because he and I uh, were talking about the, the so-called Kennedy curse. And and I have to bring that up because <laughs> Larry said that he didn't believe in curses until he did the biography of Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> and And now he's kind of inclined to go along with it. If, in fact, there was a curse against the Kennedys, did you discover anything in your research about where or how this might have started? Hmm. Yeah, that's I know an interesting it's, a, one. it's an offbeat question, Neil, and I apologize for that, but there's so much talked about with regard to the Kennedys because they were so well-known and had so many high-profile tragedies. Yeah, and and continue to to experience yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Uh, you know, just within the past few years, in fact, you know, I, I, I I'm not a believer in a curse per se, um, but that family absolutely had its uh, more than its share of tragedies over the years, um, as you said. But I but I also, I guess I I found that 
going back to the generations that I write about, um, that bega- that started in the very beginning. Whatever you want to call it, a curse or bad luck or just the, you, you know, the tragic uh, uh, lives of poor immigrants coming to America, they experienced incredible loss throughout that entire family. You know, as I just mentioned, Bridget lost her husband just nine years after coming to America. She and her husband lost their first son. Her daughters uh, lost, I, I, I think it was like 11 of their own children um, because it was so much disease and um, poverty uh, during their lives. P.J. Kennedy, uh, Joe's father, <clears throat> lost a son in the 1890s as well. Uh, so, you know, you can go down through every uh, leg of that uh, or branch of that family tree and, and just tick off all these uh, deaths um, that just accumulate over time. And, and tying that together, I'd say, is how I got started in, on this book in the first place, which was as a newspaper reporter covering the death of JFK Jr. in 1999. That's when I first started uh, to have an inkling that I wanted to go back to the beginning and find out where this passion for the Kennedys uh, all began and, and where that family started in America. The Kennedy family is about as close to royalty as Americans have ever experienced. Um, and, and dynasty is the, is the more correct word, but, you know, that, that whole Camelot thing when JFK was uh, in the White House for those thousand days, um, and, and then being struck down so publicly uh, as, as he was, um, really catapulted that family into a very special place in history. Not that they wouldn't have been anyway, but I, I'm curious how, how they could overcome, and I'm talking about as a, as a family, as individuals, generationally, so many hard luck challenges yeah, it's interesting when we talk about dynasty and royalty as it relates to the Kennedys. One of the things I explore in the book, going back to the first Kennedys, is this dynamic between the poor Irish in Ireland in the, during the potato famine and then the English um, who basically owned Ireland. It was a colony of Ireland, and, and the many Irish families, including the Kennedys, rented their land back from the English. So going way back to the beginning, there was this tension between the Irish and the crown. Um, then uh, it, it, later in America, you have this dynamic with um, uh, Joe sort of resisting his Irish past and embracing his Americanism. He wanted his family to become fully Americanized and not be hyphenized like Irish-American. And then you have Joe becoming the first Irish to be appointed to the uh, ambassadorship of, of England. So there's this interesting, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd argue, sort of tension with the, the British and the, and the, and the Crown um, as it relates to the Kennedys over time. More about the roots of the Kennedy family with journalist and author Neil Thompson straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about the roots of the Kennedy family with journalist and author Neil Thompson, straight ahead. Back to your question about what enabled them to overcome all these hardships. Well, let's, hardships. let's, let's talk Umbrella. about Bridget for a minute, because, you know, I, I, I mentioned almost tongue-in-cheek that she was, uh, you know, the original single mom, but um, but she went from just eating, just barely making out a living, barely feeding herself and her family, to running a store, to running a shop. How did she? How did she manage to do that? Most people can't find a place to live. Yeah, right, and that was the case for many many of the Irish immigrants. You know, I think there was uh, I may have I may have used the word already, but I think there was this tenacity in her. Yeah, this uh, this sense that she could accomplish more than she was due, more than she was allowed to do. You know, there were so many. Uh, uh, hurdles for her to overcome as an immigrant, as a Catholic, as a widow. As but a how did mom. she? How did she do it? Was she able to get investors, or you know? Um... Yeah, one one of the challenges of the book, and I think it's one reason uh, previous authors haven't gone as far down this path as I did, maybe recklessly so. There's just not a lot <laughs> that's fully known about her and, and those early days. Um, you know, she was a poor immigrant widow. She didn't leave behind her collected papers, for example. And, you know, right. when I talk to folks like family members, Kennedy family members, uh, they didn't know much about Bridget either. They knew the rough outlines of her story, uh, and that was it. Same with the uh, the Kennedy John F. Kennedy's presidential library outside Boston. They had uh, little bits of information, but not a lot. So I had to dig deep into a bunch of different sources and try and understand what her life was like and what she experienced in different roles across her uh, across her life. But it's easy. It's not easy. It's uh, I was able to sort of follow the traje- trajectory of her ascent. From a, a maid, which is how the, the the job that many women took when they came to America, Irish women. Her name was Bridget. A lot of uh, Irish maids were just nicknamed Bridget or Biddy. It was almost a job that she was destined for, and could have been stuck there. But at some point, she ended up becoming a hairdresser at a department store in downtown Boston. Um, there, she met this sort of entrepreneurial uh, co-founder of the department store who trained his. Uh, employees in in these lessons that I think later served her well as she opened her own grocery store. You know, so she learned things step by step, little by little along the way, I think because she sought them out. She sought out this uh, hairdresser job because the department store was a new opportunity and she found her way in. And then while she was there, she learned how to deal with customers, and she learned about, you know, commerce and what people wanted at that time in Boston, um, which led her to uh, probably borrowing some money, maybe from her boss at this department store, Jordan Marsh, and then remarkably opening her own shop. But it, it goes beyond that, too, and I describe in the book how she didn't just run her own little shop. In time, she was able to take out a mortgage and buy the building where the shop existed. Then she bought the building next to that when that came up for sale. So 
here's this woman who just, you know, 25 years after coming to America and being at the lowest possible rung on that economic ladder is a business owner and uh, a landlord. She leased out the apartments above her store to incoming Irish immigrants, two of whom became her sons-in-law. So she really became this community presence in East Boston, and her shop was kind of this hub around which uh, her, her little neighborhood uh, flourished. And and then um, what's then what's PJ's story? That's sort of the next. Is is that the next generation then? It is, yeah. And the book is essentially divided that way, Tom. It's. You know, Bridget's story is the first half, her coming to America and um, getting to a place of respectability and success. And then it picks up with uh, the story of her son, PJ, who, kind of a rough childhood, you know, fatherless kid, poor, running around the streets of East Boston, didn't have a great education because schools weren't really designed to help poor Irish immigrant kids. Um, He finds work initially on the docks of East Boston, same spot where his father worked. It was a big shipbuilding industry there in East Boston, and P.J. worked as a longshoreman and a stevedore. But similar to his mom, he wasn't willing to settle for just that, um, just working in a, in a blue-collar job. He eventually uh, saves money, probably borrowed some from his mother, and opens his own saloon in South Boston. Um, that one lasts a little while, and then he saves up enough money to open another saloon in East Boston. Later, he runs, opens up a retail liquor shop, and in time, he builds up this small empire uh, of liquor shops and retail shops and wholesalers, all of which, in, in turn, funds his uh, upstart political career. Um, he was a contemporary of John F. Fitzgerald, JFK's other grandfather, on the maternal side, and he, P.J. Kennedy, and John F. Fitzgerald were part of this first wave of Irish Democrats starting to get elected to state and then national office in the late 1880s, 1890s, sort of that that sort of breakthrough for the Irish getting into positions of power at a time when they had mostly been kept out of elected office by the old-school Brahmins of, of Boston. Neil, how was it that that um, Irish immigrants landed um, in such large numbers in New York and Boston, um, and and not say New Orleans, which was a much bigger port? Um, was was there something geographically about the you know a direct line from Ireland to that part of uh, the American East Coast? Yeah, there, there were a few things, uh, although, you know, folks did, uh, many uh, Irish immigrants did end up in New Orleans as well, and a few other port cities, Baltimore. Um, but yeah, the bulk of them came to Boston and New York, and uh, some of that had to do with the Cunard shipping lines that uh, had a direct um, sort of flow of traffic between Liverpool, England, and um, mainly Boston, but also New York. Um, and there was a lot of advertisement in the uh, newspapers of, uh, of uh, across Ireland during the potato famine and for the next few decades afterwards, uh, advertising um, transport from Liverpool to Boston or New, or New York. And then I think, too, a lot of once the first waves of, of Irish settled in those two places, more than other parts of the country, 
they uh, sent word back to their family members and said, hey, come on over. There's jobs to be had here. And so the next wave of Irish immigrants would come to those same ports of Boston and New York. Um, you know, things spread out from there, but during the 1800s, uh, those two cities, Boston in particular, were just overwhelmed by tens and tens of thousands of, uh, of Irish immigrants. Now, with with PJ, he ran for um, an elected office. Was it mayor? No, uh, that was John Fitzgerald later became mayor, but PJ's start was in the uh, Massachusetts State House. He, okay. he initially was kind of a street-level political soldier uh, in East Boston, just, you know, working the polls and getting the vote out and working for his ward bosses. Um, and in time, he worked up to become the ward boss for his district in, in East Boston. His first major elected office was uh, as a state representative uh, for the state of Massachusetts. And I think it's it's kind of telling, too, about him and other traits throughout that family that where a lot of politicians would start on the Boston City Council or the Board of Aldermen, uh, PJ uh, aimed higher. He wanted to be uh, serving at the you know the State House uh, of Massachusetts in downtown Boston. So he served five years as a representative and then two years uh, as a uh, state senator. And then from there, continued to have even more influential roles as an appointed commissioner, commissioner of wires and fire commissioner, um, and these other uh, well-paid roles working for the city of Boston. Now, who Um, then was Joe's father? PJ was Joe's father. Okay. Um, And 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 Rose, uh, uh, Joe's wife, uh, John Fitzgerald, was Rose's father. Okay. Now, the, the... The reason that I bring that up, I don't want to jump ahead to to future generations, but but I am curious about what Joe's childhood might have been like because he certainly had the benefit of the accomplishments of the generation that the actually two generations before him. Yeah, yeah, he did, and you know he. Joe grew up a child of privilege, um, and, I, and I think it's pretty mar- remarkable that in just that span of time, yeah. you see the Kennedys uh, sort of rise from nothing, dirt poor Irish immigrants, to the the level uh, that P.J., Joe's father, was able to reach um, by the late 1800s. Which had so. Joe growing up basically middle class and then some. Middle to upper, absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, over time there's been this mythology about Joe as this bootstrap kid. You right, know, right. Or made, made himself a self-made man and that kind of thing. He's that's an why I, guy, for sure, <laughs> but he's not a self-made man. <laughs> Neil, that's why I wanted to touch on that a little bit, is to dispel that notion that, you know, the first Kennedy on American soil was Joe, and, you know, he he basically cracked the... the American dream in one generation. <laughs> right. No. No. And he, he in his lifetime, played that up. Uh, and he also played down his, his backstory as, as the grandson of Irish immigrants. I mean, he didn't, he didn't want to, uh, I don't think he wanted to give credit to Bridget, for example. Um, you know, there is kind of a machismo that, that runs through that family, um, or worse, in some circumstances. And, uh, and so Joe's 
story has been repeated so many times that it, it really does an, a disservice to where the story really begins with his father and grandparents. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, for example, Joe Kennedy was touted as, you know, being the youngest bank president in America in 1914 when he took over uh, the Columbia Savings Bank in East Boston. Well, what's often left out of that statement is the fact that it was his father's bank. His father founded it a decade <laughs> earlier and helped Joe get the job. Um, you know, so there are little bits and pieces that are kind of overlooked uh, about what how things really began with uh P.J. Kennedy really bringing that family to its 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 position of power and wealth, um, and and then handing things over to Joe and Joe taking it from there. I and I just I can't help being um, really enamored with uh, with Bridget because she really did launch the beginning of of well and maybe the completion of the American dream. Yeah, as you said earlier, in one generation. Yeah. You know, he, her her son, uh, he, he was uh, an elected official when she died, and she died in 1888 in her 60s, but at least she was able to see her son uh, achieve the beginnings of his success. There was more to come. Um, and she, she actually died when uh, uh, Joe Kennedy was just a, a few months old, so she never even knew Joe, but she... she got the family to this this level that she probably could never have even imagined when she arrived on U.S. soil decades earlier. Uh, I, I really do think she's the, the overlooked hero of that family, and hopefully this book gives her the credit that she's due. Yeah, I, like I say, I'm really, really quite fascinated by her. Uh, and I think uh, even above all of the accomplishments of, of a very big, successful family, um, it, it all seems to be on her back. Yeah, I mean, there was so much that, that she faced down and overcame, some of which we've talked about, but the anti-immigrant discrimination that she faced, the laws that were set up by, for example, the know-nothings of the mid-1800s, you know, the laws to keep Irish people, uh, you know, out of positions of power, she overcame all of that, um, and, and which makes her success uh, and her family's eventual success all the more remarkable and um now did she read she she was able to read and write according to census records um and so she was able to keep you know the books for her grocery store because not uh, everybody could right oh absolutely not yeah so uh so she she had some schooling it, it it seems obvious uh back in Ireland and then maybe continued to learn more once she came to America and then you see Joe uh PJ later interestingly even though he didn't last uh too long in public education uh as a bartender uh, you know when he was running his own saloons he was he was known for always having his nose in a book or a newspaper catching up on the education he probably seems to feel he missed earlier on so he was became a self-educated well-educated man on, on his own yeah this is this is just fascinating how tough was it to research back before joe especially given the the fact that he kind of downplayed his prior history yeah yeah many 
many challenges in, in the research for sure, but it made it kind of a fun um, sort of a mystery to solve for me. This is my sixth book, and so I've, they've all been heavily researched nonfiction books. Um, but this one created a whole new set of challenge because no one, no one was alive to interview. For example, there weren't, as I said earlier, the collected papers of Bridget and Patrick or Kennedy. There were papers that P.J. Kennedy left behind, um, and they are held at the John F. Kennedy Library. However, they were kept off limits for many years. It was only at the tail end of my uh, research and writing on this book that the bulk of those papers were opened up by the Kennedy Library and shared with me. I was the first one to gain access to those papers. A lot of business letters and personal letters that really gave some insight into PJ's character as well as his mother's character as a business owner and someone who really cared about and gave back to the neighborhood and the community. Um, but my research for this went back years. I traveled to Ireland and did some archival research there and toured the uh, the Kennedy uh, farm that's still held by members of the Kennedy family today in County Wexford. Um, uh, spent a lot of time at the JFK Library, spent a lot of time at archives in Boston, like the Massachusetts Historical Society, um, and then did a lot of newspaper research. I was amazed to find how much was available at uh, sites like newspapers.com uh, that had every issue of the Boston Globe and the Boston Pilot and other Boston newspapers going back into the 1800s. <laughs> the papers of record. Yep. <laughs> We don't have right at my fingertips now. Yeah, we don't have those uh, as much anymore. Um, but uh, but interesting to be sure. I, I can I can understand how much fun that might be trying to dig through and and follow those strands back. Did any of the future generations of Kennedys take an interest in their ancestry? Uh, beyond not, beyond Joe. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, you're right, though. It did that interest in heritage and Irish history and where he came from definitely skipped Joe. Um, you know, at the tail end of the book, I show uh, John Kennedy uh, visiting Ireland um, later on. Uh, you know, he went there, uh, I think it was 1947, was one of his visits where he drove down to his uh, family farm and met some family members there. He famously again visited as president in 1963. So I'd argue uh, John had probably the most interest of Joe's kids in um, in that heritage and, and what where his family actually started. Um, but at the same time, he uh, never mentioned Bridget Kennedy in, in any speech that I was able to find. He did mention his grandfather, great-grandfather Patrick in a speech he gave in New Ross, Ireland in 1963, um, gave Patrick credit for coming to America as a poor barrel maker during the famine, but never mentioned Bridget, who was really the one who should have received credit for, for, for what JFK became. Were any, was, were any of the buildings... Um still around, even though they may have changed hands, um, Bridget's uh, buildings or, or PJ's uh, pubs? Um, 
in in Boston. You mean primarily? Yeah. Yeah. yeah n- none that I was able to find. It seemed I was able to find all the addresses where Bridget's business existed, which is just a, a tenement house now. Um, and uh, I think one of PJ's first uh, saloons on this little angled street called Elbow Street in East Boston is now a Head Start community center. Hmm. Um, so some of the buildings are still around. Uh, interestingly, one of PJ's first and most successful saloons was in, in um, a part of a northern part of Boston that uh, was later completely demolished and now is, uh, I think it's named Fitz. Gerald Plaza. It's named for one of the Kennedy family members. <laughs> that's all gone now, too. Make a room for future generations, I guess. Um, yeah. Neil, this is just a fascinating book, and I really appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners to share some of what you uncovered, and, and of course, for people who want to know more, the book is uh, called The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. And uh, it it literally goes on sale this week. So um, you can uh, find it just about anywhere. Neil, um, I I always like to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Do you have a website? Yeah, and thanks for asking, Tom, and thanks for talking to me today. I really enjoyed it. Appreciated the great questions. Um, yeah, uh, listeners can find me at my website. It's neilthompson.com. Neil is N-E-A-L. Um, plenty of information there about the first Kennedys, about some uh, events I have coming up in Boston and some other cities, um, some some of the early reviews and other press coverage for the book, uh, as well as information on how to find me on social media, information about my other books, um, and then folks can drop me a line there, too. There's a co- contact link if anyone wanted to reach out and say hello, neilthompson.com. Neil, is there uh, is there another book coming down the pike? Getting closer. I've got <laughs> nursing a handful of ideas, and I think I'm honing in on one, but not quite ready to admit that this is the one. It's, well, I hope I, I hope when you uh, when you decide and and when you get it uh, together and out, I hope you'll come back and talk with us some more. I'd love to do that, Tom. Thanks. All Appreciate right. It. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Again, Neil Thompson author of The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Summer Program.com The Tom Summer Program.com From the Tom
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Gen- my Community College. It's pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. 
Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Good evening. This is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady. Good evening, Charles. Good evening. Shall we begin here in the West Wing? Yes. If your cameras will just move through these oak panel doors over here on our left, we will be in the present <laughs> was named after our 35th president. I can't help but wish your cameramen had opened the doors before they moved their heavy cameras The doors, incidentally, were a gift from Mrs. R.C. Greenleaf of Raleigh, North Carolina. They were made out of solid oak, and up until a few seconds ago, they stood over 15 feet high. <laughs> They were lovely. Now we are approaching the Thomas Jefferson Room, which I think you'll find rather interesting. President Jefferson used to come into this room and sit for hours just gazing out the window at the White House lawn. The White House lawn was a gift from Mrs. W.C. Ridgway of Hollyhock, Virginia, the president and I decided to leave it just the way it was originally. It's lovely. This football, which has just come crashing through the $5,000 President McKinley French windows, belongs to the current president, who, of course, is also my husband. He's lovely. <laughs> Now we're entering the President Grant drawing room, which I think you'll find rather interesting. We decided to leave this room just the way it was when President Grant left office. I do notice a lot of dust on the furniture in here. Yes, and that dust was a gift from Mrs. <laughs> of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Now, if you'd care to follow me down this hall to the next room, as we go, I should like to point out the various paintings on the wall. Yes, I wish you would point them out. Well, there's this one and this one. (laughs) And that great big one over there and this little teeny one down here. And finally, this one over here. Thank you for pointing them out. (laughs) What's in this room over here? I believe we are standing in front of the President Monroe Conference Room. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. (laughs) It's so easy to get confused. It's such a big house. Now, I believe straight ahead of us is the blue room. Yes, this is the blue room. 
we decided to leave it just the way President Blue had it originally. <laughs> now we are in the East Wing. This is the section we are having completely remodeled. All the rooms are being changed around. Yes, the carpenters certainly are busy, aren't they? Aren't they, though? And those carpenters were a gift from Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> Al Bianchi of Hayworth, New Jersey. I find it quite easy to get lost in this section. Yes, I imagine one could get lost in here. Pardon me, pardon me. I seem to have uh, made the uh, wrong turn somewhere. Now, I'm trying to uh, find the bedroom. I just came out of the uh, John Hancock bathroom where I was uh, taking a shower in the Alexander Hamilton bathtub. And I think the that... carpenters and painters here have been just the, uh, working like beavers around the clock. Which way is the bedroom? The bedroom is where? Actually, the original schedule didn't call for it to be completed until July. But the work has gone. I I should like to point out that I am. I am. I am standing here in my shorts, uh, dripping wet. Now I've. I've got an important conference in uh, 15 minutes. So I must be dressed in uh, ten minutes, which means I shall have to uh, move ahead uh, toward our bedroom with great vigor. Excuse me, Charles. Dear, go down this hall to the Andrew Jackson smoking room, then turn right into the President Taft rumpus room, across over through the Woodrow Wilson ping-pong room, then left at the Dolly Madison Pinnacle Room, through the President Grant Drinking Room, past the Richard Nixon Dumbwaiter. <laughs> and that's our room. Well, let's see. Now I go past the, uh, the Dolly Madison Ping Pong Room, across the uh, Richard Nixon the Drinking Room, and then I go left at the Andrew Jackson room. Uh, Wasn't that your husband? Yes, it was. He's a magnificent-looking man. Yes, and we decided to leave him just the way he was <laughs> Incidentally, he was a gift. That's nice. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Feet 
can go back to school I'm washing my hands Like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC I've taken down all my mirrors And I'm sick of what I see of quarantine will be the death of me the death of me I risk a trip to the grocery store to buy a TV and a few things more but when I get there all I can find Sixteen honey buns and some mad dog wine. I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, cause I'm sick of what I see. So this quarantine's gonna be the death of me. The death of me. You know, they say this is war. But we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Pork Chop Hill. And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. Whew, I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bad soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes, dear, yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized as <laughs> soon as I regained consciousness. show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs> 